Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Hi, it's Lainey from the Library Love Fest marketing team. Welcome. Today we're bringing you audio from a previously recorded interview with Juliet Grames, the author of The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna, coming out May 7th. In this interview, Juliet sat down with Brendan Dowling of FYI, the Public Library's podcast. Juliet did an amazing interview with Brendan about her debut novel, The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna. This is a novel about a young woman telling the story behind two elderly sisters' estrangement, unraveling family secrets, stretching back a century and across the Atlantic to early 20th century Italy. Enjoy, and please be sure to check out FYI, the Public Library's podcast. The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna introduces readers to a truly unforgettable character, Stella Fortuna, who we first meet as a nearly 100-year-old woman locked in a bitter feud with her sister, who also happens to be her next-door neighbor, in Hartford, Connecticut. From there, our narrator, Stella's granddaughter, traces the remarkable lives of these two women from their girlhood in Calabria, through their immigration to the States, and their eventual marriages. Along the way, Stella manages to escape the clutches of death seven, possibly eight, times, ranging from a seemingly mundane encounter with an eggplant to a gruesome battle with hungry pigs. Throughout the story, Stella's fierce love of her family and relentless pursuit of her independence shine through. Grames has created a character who you'll root for, fall in love with, and possibly recognize from your own family. Uh, Juliet Grames, the author of this incredible family saga, is here today to talk to us about her book. Juliet, thank you so much for being here. No, thank you, Brendan. This is really exciting. It's my first interview, so I'm, I'm just honored that I can do an interview for public libraries. This is a story that you've wanted to tell since you were eight. What about these characters and this story have been so compelling to you for so long? A lot of authors will tell you that they wanted to write from the time they were little kids, and then it took them a while to figure out the story they wanted to tell. This story or some version of it was always in the back of my mind, and I'm I'm grateful that after all these years, I finally had the chance to put it down. But it is basically inspired by my own grandmother, and I come from a very tight-knit Italian family. I spent a lot of time with my grandmother mother when I was a kid and I found her very charismatic and you know even though she did have um, she had an accident that left her partially mentally incapacitated when I was a kid even so I just thought the stories she told were so compelling and I wanted to you know get close to her by trying to understand where she'd come from and to write her story down and I remember my dad had this Amiga computer this really old model in the 1980s in um, in my bedroom that I, I remember trying to tap out uh, a story when I was eight years old called An Italian Girl that was a version of my grandmother's life story. And I think it was like a page and a half long. This book is much longer than that. <laughs> um, <in a> <laughs> so it's taken many permutations. But I, I have always wanted to write in some form about my grandmother. In many ways, this novel is the love story between Stella and her sister, Tina. It's loosely inspired by the relationship between your grandmother and great aunt. 
And can you talk about the relationship they had over the course of their lives? So my my grandmother, who passed away this summer at age 98, and her sister, who's alive um, and 97, they were both born in a tiny village in Calabria, which is the toe of the Italian boot, very southernmost part of Italy. The 19-teens and 20s was incredibly poor. They were best friends as kids always very, very close. They immigrated to America together when they were teenagers. They always slept in the same bed in their tiny house. When they got married, they got married to best friends. They bought two plots of land right next door to each other. They raised their kids together in this uh, kind of one communal backyard and just very, very close, tight-knit family. And then my grandmother actually had a brain trauma when I was five years old and she received a life-saving lobotomy, which let us have her for another 30 years, um, for which I'm grateful, but it also changed her brain and her personality. And when she woke up from her coma, she wouldn't speak to her sister anymore. For the first 70 years of their lives, they were best friends and inseparable. And then all of a sudden, there was this shock to the family where these two matriarchs, they could never be in the same room again. It really struck me very powerfully. I didn't kind of realize that everyone didn't have a kind of grandma drama this way. I still wanted to try to understand it. And um, I love, I'm very close to my aunt. Obviously, I loved my grandmother very much. And it's, you know, heartbreaking that they couldn't, in their old age, after their husbands passed away, you know, be there for each other. Um, I just found this loneliness really compelling. And yeah, the Stella Fortuna is a novel. It's it's fictional. The thing is that my my grandmother, um, who I've I've tried so hard to understand by, you know, collecting her stories, collecting stories people remember about her, she did have this brain trauma that changed her personality and that made it impossible to know her point of view or uh, what she was thinking or why she did what she did. So in the end, I had to make that all up. So Stella is a, a fictional character who has, the you know, the beginning of her life starts in the same place that my grandmother's life started. And the eight deaths that Stella almost has during the course of the novel, those all actually happened to my grandmother in some form or another. Other than that, the book is invented because it is, you know, told from Stella's point of view. And I'll never know exactly what my grandmother thought. I'm, I'm too young to remember what her, I was too young when she had the accident. Um, to remember what her personality was like before. To get back to the sisters, the relationship between the sisters, I, I have a sister and I, I love her. She's she's one of my best friends. And the idea of having that relationship throughout our whole lives and have it suddenly fall apart in our old age when we need each other most or, or when, you know, when things are getting hard, um, I just think is totally heartbreaking. You understand where they're coming from, which makes, I think, the rift even more heartbreaking. And the first third of the book immerses you in the day-to-day life of 1920s and uh, 1930s Calabria with everything from family sleeping arrangements to the intricacies of silkworm farming. What was your research process like? I love research. I'm, I'm a research mm-hmm. nut. I, I research things that I have no reason to research. But in this case, I will say that the most important resource in reconstructing uh, what this part of the world was like at this time were interviews. Luckily, in the Italian South, People live a very, very long time. I have this theory that it's because everyone goes to church at least once a week, but many people go every day, and the church is always at the top of the hill. So I think people have very good cardiac health because they're like basically hiking up a mountain every day to go to church. So I interviewed a lot of nonagenarians, both here in the States. I took a leave of absence from work, and I went and I lived in my grandmother's village, which is called Yevoli, for a while in the winter of 2015, and I had the chance 
chance to interview a lot of people there. It's fascinating how much people remember about this time, about the 20s and 30s, and collecting their stories and compiling them. I tried to work in as many different people's recollections as I could into the book, because I think oral history is really important, and you definitely get stuff that you don't see in books that sometimes it's hard to believe. You're like, can this really be true? And and I think, you know, historians have written written histories will kind of, you know, they'll pull punches there. They'll be afraid to put some of the more um, hard to believe stuff into into writing if they can't support it with uh, facts. But I'm telling you, the stories that come out of these tiny villages are just uh, mind-bending and wonderful. Aside from interviews, local town halls in Italy and also the parochial records, like the, the local churches, are incredibly well kept. You know, if you're interested in anything about, if you're trying to find an Italian ancestor or you want to learn more about an Italian village, I do encourage you to contact the local uh, town hall or the municipio. It's called in Italian, and they will have birth and death records, they'll have marriage records, they'll have all kinds of stuff. In the case of Yevoli, they date back to 1826. The registrar officer was very generous with her time as well, and I, I made many trips down to the Yevoli town hall to uh, to pull records. And the churches also keep really comprehensive records, including property records. And finally, I, I visited a lot of kind of mini museums. There's a heritage silk museum in Calabria about Calabria silkworm farming, which was a huge industry before World War II that I think people have largely forgotten about. But it was a women's industry. It was something women could do at home while their men were um, either away at war or had emigrated all over the world to try to find work in other places. Women could raise silkworms in their houses and then do silk weaving and, and spinning, and um, it became a vital source of income. There's lots of cool little stuff like that in villages all over Italy, and I'm grateful that I had this chance to take this research trip. And the silkworm farming was something that your own grandmother and great-aunt did when they were little girls, right? After my grandmother had her accident, she was the one who told the story about silkworm farming. And um, my mother, her daughter, had never heard it before. And she thought, you know, she thought she was confused. She's like, no, ma, silkworms are from China. Like, they're not from Italy. And um, and sure enough, when she went and asked my, my great aunt, my aunt was like, yeah, no, we, we totally raised silkworms when we were kids. This was, you know, what we did every summer. For me, that was a really valuable learning moment about memory and how kind of families do bury some stories and that sometimes it kind of takes throwing a wrench into the works to, to drag up these truths. So much of their family story is about the secrets that different members are keeping. And um, at one point, the narrator says, only certain secrets are for keeping. I admit I haven't been able to quite figure out the difference between the two. Maybe that's why I'm writing this. And for you, what was it like writing a book where the family history is filled with such a range of secrets from mundane things to, to really truly horrible occurrences. I think most families have these kinds of secrets on both levels. I definitely enjoyed the process of, of digging in here and trying to figure out in this fictional family why certain things got covered up and why certain lies were told uh, to kind of patch things over. I don't think the fictional Fortuna family is the only family that has these kinds of um, multiple layers. I think most of our families, we have things that we're ashamed of. We have things that we've lied about just because it's fun to tell stories a certain way. And the years go by, the permutations evolve, and, and we sometimes step away from the core fact as it was. They become legend and myth, and, and sometimes that's great. And sometimes 
sometimes it could really use some reexamination. That line that you picked to read is a really important one to me about this book and, and why I think all of us should look at our family histories and what we can learn from them. The reader really gets to admire her just in terms of how she's willing to take this unblinking look at every aspect of her family's history. The narrator also says early in the book, I hope the fruits of my obsession will be the disinterment of Stella Fortuna, an explication of her too strange life and a restoration of her besmirched good name. What do you hope readers will come away with after, after reading your novel? Writers sit in the dark alone and they're typing away and they never think anyone's going to read their book. And it's a privilege for the book to be read at all. But for me, the most rewarding thing by far is when people start telling me about their grandmothers. And I've heard about a lot of grandmothers now. And I, I just think one thing that's really cool is I, I know my grandmother was misunderstood. The last 30 years of her life overshadowed the first 70 years because of this traumatic brain injury that she had. And, and caring for her became a chore um, that really taxed the family. And, you know, we we loved her and, and we took care of her and didn't begrudge her that. But it, the memories of her youth were eroded and they disappeared. And the more I researched about my grandmother, the more I thought she was this incredibly extraordinary woman and not necessarily the um, cranky or difficult person that she was remembered as later in life. These are the things about that generation, that, that being a woman was really hard and it, it was physically hard, it was psychologically hard, like the, the levels of trauma that a woman had to endure, the things she was just expected to do to survive could really take a physical or mental psychological toll. And these women who gave us life deserve our forgiveness and they deserve our understanding and they do deserve for us to realize what they went through to, to bring us here, you know, and we can't judge them, hold them to modern standards. I'm so grateful that people are looking at the, the quote unquote difficult women in their past and, and are remembering their love for them and, uh, and maybe examining what their real stories were. It's such a compassionate look at both of the women. Julia, I want to wrap up by asking, what role has the public library played in your life? Brendan, I bet you've never had an author tell you before that they were a very awkward child and that their only friends were books, right? And that they spent a lot of time at their local library because it was a safe place for them. The public library was not only just right down the street from me, it was the bus stop where I was dropped off after school. So when I was having a bad day uh, or didn't have any friends to play with, I would go there and the librarians were always nice to me and helped me pick out books that would challenge me. And it was always a safe space, you know, close to home. And I just, I wish everyone could kind of have that environment. Thank you so much for being here today. The book is so engrossing and I think readers are really going to love not only reading it but also talking about it and, and analyzing it. The book is called The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna and it comes out May 7th, 2019. Thank you again to our guests today, Juliet Graham, whose book The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna comes out this May. Thank you again for listening to FYI. This is Brennan Dowling signing off. Thank you.